Well, I think I think we need to begin because uh, we have a lot of stuff to do and not a whole lot of time to do it in. And uh, first of all, I really appreciate you coming today. And we'll pick it up again like we left off um, last year. So, okay. Um, we should begin with prayer. So we're gathered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, Lord God, for this time. We thank you for our friendship. We thank you for our fellowship. We thank you for wisdom and insight. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, which works in the church, making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, what we're going to do together in the, in the next eight weeks, I, I hope this works. Um, this is a condensation of an honors class uh, at Eau Claire that I teach with a Roman Catholic priest. And what we, uh, what we do is we look at documents of the church's history that spelled out reform. And so we start with um, asking students to read the book of Acts. Uh, and then we end up with uh, documents of uh, Vatican II. And there is a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there is an, uh, a document by the Faith and Order Commission called Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, also known as BEM. We look at that. Uh, and in, in between, we look at various documents that mark the church's change and reform. Everything from uh, the rule of St. Benedict uh, down to the Barman Declaration, which was a, a part of the German National Church. Uh, we look at some frontier documents uh, when the church uh, came to uh, this country. And uh, what we've done then is to study documents. And we can't, do that in, we can't do that in eight weeks that you could do that in a semester long. Uh, so what I did is I gave you a syllabus of the sort of major, major times of reform within the church. And then I tried to, uh, to note various documents if you wish to you know explore a little bit further um, you, you could you could reference those for example when we get to the Lutheran Reformation uh, we're not going to read the 56 volumes of Luther but uh, what we are going to do is I spelled out um, a, a couple of uh, a couple of Luther's writings which might indicate um, kind of the spirit of Luther's reform uh, so if you, want to, uh, if you want to look at those uh, in a little more detail, you may do that. Now, uh, I think all of us, uh, I think we're at an age, well, maybe not. We are, we are in an age when uh, there was a hymn that we used to sing. It was called, My Church, My Church, My Dear Old Church, My Father's and My Own. Anybody remember that old hymn, an old, old hymn? Well, you know, it was, um, it, it was at best... Uh, inaccurate. <laughs> uh, the, 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 church, uh, the church of today is not my father's church, nor is it your father's, your mother's church, nor is it the church that uh, you were baptized in. Um, the church, if there's anything that has marked the church, it, it is uh, this constant flux and constant change and constant reform. Um, that, that should not surprise us because the central document uh, or tenet of belief for all of us has to do with what? Uh, the miracle of Easter. Huh? 
that in order for there to be the new life of uh, Easter morning, there first had to be the death of Good Friday. And then in between, there's the craziness of Holy Saturday or the chaos of Holy Saturday. And, and that rhythm of, of death and chaos and rebirth really has marked the history of the church for the past 2,000 years. So it, it has been a, a church that is in constant reform. But I think if we all will go back to what our catechism days when we memorized the definition of the third article, the third article, the, the work of the Spirit is to what? Call, gather, enlighten, and preserve the one holy uh, Catholic Church. Um, it, the Spirit is alive and well and unleashed among us. Now, that, that is very dangerous uh, also uh, because there, there's a part of all of us that would like to cling to the past in the way that it was. And there is uh, a part of us, I think, that would like to put uh, the Holy Spirit on a leash and sort of housebreak the Spirit and uh, get the Spirit to do our, our bidding. Uh, but the Spirit uh, is, uh, is, uh, is alive, well, and blowing among us. Huh? This crazy, well, as, uh, as Reinhardt said, it, it's like reaping the whirlwind. Isn't that a wonderful, um, th this, this whole notion of God's being unleashed among us, constantly changing and constantly bringing what? Fulfillment to the promise to make all things new. So what I'd like to do uh, today is, uh, if you go to the second page, I'd like to look at some principles of change. Now, what is, uh, what is true about the church is probably true about you and myself in our own lives. Um, I doubt if any of us ever got up on the morning and said, I think I'll change today. Um, we, we might do that relative to diet. Huh? Uh, that's probably about the only thing, but even relative to diet, usually uh, change relative to diet is, you know, having looked at ourselves in the mirror one day and said, uh, that's me, or, or that's all of me, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I, I lost 31 pounds, but I didn't do it uh, intentionally. Uh, it was the result of, uh, you know, uh, something I did not choose. and. Uh, and, and so even, even weight loss, I don't think, is voluntary. But, but that is true with the church. And what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is I'd like to explore some of the factors that have caused the church to change over its past 2,000 years. Now, uh, most of these are tr also transferable uh, to, to other changes that we experience. They're, they're not just simply isolated to the church. But first, I'd like to start out with a governing principle. Um, there, there, is a, there is a premise, or there is a principle, uh, called the, the principle of integrity. I, that may be my own title for it. Um, that, that there is an honesty that we have to explore. That the way that the church worships on a Sunday morning, okay, our... Uh, our lex arande, the, the law of our prayer, if you want to think about in that terms. Uh, arande is Latin for ramus, to pray. The, the, the law of our prayer isn't just happenstance. It's shaped by what we hold to be true. Huh? That is the lex credendi, 
part of the whole equation. So we start out with what we hold to be true, our, our belief, and our belief always, always seeks expression if it's going to be honest. Now, I think I've used this as an example a couple of other times with you because it is not just isolated to this particular series. Um, much as we would like to uh, brag that uh, Lutherans are extremely honest people, and you will never catch us doing anything that is not uh, filled with integrity, uh, I would invite you to come to a lot of our Lutheran weddings and, 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 uh, and, and see what we do there. Uh, because I have a feeling that what typically goes on at a 2 o'clock Saturday wedding is far more influenced by American culture uh, and, and American Bride magazine and probably Vanity Fair and a couple of other things and the, you know, after six tuxedo rental people. Uh, than it is about uh, any Lutheran theology concerning uh, our belief in marriage and what marriage is. Huh? In fact, if you, uh, if you do any kind of exploration uh, of all the practices that we have, our occasional services, probably um, marriage, uh, the theology of marriage is probably the weakest. Huh? Um, the, the, you just, there's one book that I know of, uh, that is written uh, called Nuptial Blessing, and it's by a guy who's Episcopalian. His name is Kenneth Stevenson. It's the only thing, it's the only thing that I've ever seen written on, on, uh, on nuptial blessings. Um, Luther had a little piece called Luther in the, uh, Christ in the Home, or Luther, and, and that's about it. Uh, so there isn't a whole lot of supportive stuff to to uh, undergird what we do at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. Uh, but, but we certainly, uh, the, the, for example, the whole idea of a woman walking down the aisle and being given away would certainly be contrary to, I think, any understanding we would have about gender equity. Huh? Um, but yet we, we sort of act out that pageant. Huh? And, and in fact, most of our marriages are indeed pageantry which is probably one of the reasons, I, I, I've never asked Heather this, but uh, most pastors I know would much rather do, you know, I always use the equation five, five funerals to any one wedding. Uh, because at least in a, in a funeral, it's an honest occasion. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and yet we're being asked to uh, participate in, in a pageant, uh, which in many, many cases has little meaning to anybody. Uh, but yet enormous amounts of time and money are spent uh, sort of undergirding it. Dave, I, I would imagine the five to one might, I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but probably it's so. I think it's an understatement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, should bid on, we should bid on this, huh? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, which is why I think also, uh, I'm going to take a guess on this, why many, many pastors I know do not mind presiding at second marriages because they tend to be then uh, more honest. Uh, and, and, uh, and so this principle of integrity, uh, the reason I want to start at that point is because for, for much of the church's change for the past 2,000 years, we, we, what we see is uh, communities of faith gathering together and doing certain things maybe a, a bit different than generation before. I'll give you an example of that. 
Um, if you were to find a bulletin, uh, a, a Lutheran bulletin from St. John's Lutheran Church, Perrysville, Pennsylvania, also known as St. John's on the Highway, which is where I grew up, um, and it was on the highway. I mean, you step right out the door and you're on the highway. Um, in fact, they have a, a cop there that they hire every Sunday morning just so people get traffic stopped and you know don't get wiped out. Um, but if you were to find a bulletin there, uh, I'm guessing that you probably would not find Holy Communion offered. Um, uh, once, twice a year maybe. Yet if you were to go to St. John's Lutheran Church on the highway today, you would find in that same bulletin uh, weekly Holy Communion. Now something changed. Something, something changed in just my own lifetime. And, and so that's the kind of evidence that we have that something was going on. Huh? Something happened uh, to these German people that, that populated St. John's on the highway. They, they must have made some new discovery that compelled them to increase the frequency of the sacrament. Even though when I was growing up, um, communion was once or twice a year so that it did not become too ordinary. That was a, you know, and you, and you didn't do it to your own damnation. You had to be very serious about what you were doing. As, as a result, uh, communion was something that was sort of frightening to me because uh, I never understood whether I was worthy or not or truly worthy. Huh? That was the word. You could be worthy, but you had to be truly worthy. You know? um, and, and so there's some, that change um, occurred, the change in worship occurred because there had to be a corresponding change in belief. So, so this principle of integrity. Now, if you look around, you know, just in the years that I have been at Our Saviors, I, I, the incredible change. Uh, for example, uh, young children are now being brought to receive the sacrament. And w well, why? I mean, what happened that compelled this congregation that held the same beliefs that I was taught when I was young to make that kind of change? Um, and, and so what we want to do when we explore this progression of, of the church's reform, I want to look at behind the scenes. What was going on um, that, that, uh, that caused the church um, to do something different than it had, had done before? So we'll look a lot at the, the lex orande of the situation, the, the, the prayer life of people in these particular times, but I want to get at the lex credendi. I want to get at the, the faith that informed what these people expressed. I mean, you could put it really simple, you know, practice what you preach, I suppose, would be a simple uh, way of describing, you know, without using the Latin. But if I don't do that, I can't show off. So, <laughs> You know, um, so um, that's, that's kind of where we're going to be doing. I'm always going to be asking the, the Lutheran question, which you know and is imprinted on your hearts. You know, what does this mean? How, how, how does it mean is probably more accurate. How does what the church does and is doing, how does that express any new ideas or belief? Is, is that... Yeah, so what I did then is I, I gave you what I consider to be sort of um, factors that cause change. Now, th as I said, 
these are not only factors that cause change within the life of the church, but uh, many of these are factors which have caused uh, changes in the whole life of our culture. Um, e example, um, in the, the, the home, there are two hallmark dates um, in, in church history. Um, the first is The first is 311 AD, and the second one is 1781. Hmm? The, two, the two critical dates in, uh, in, in church history. 311 AD, um, and, and we, we are going to talk about this in great length in a couple weeks. Um, th that's the Edict of Milan. That's, that's when Constantine um, converted and uh, that's when he issued the Edict of Milan, which basically legalized Christianity. Now, prior to 311 AD, what do you have? You have a situation in which Christianity is an outlawed religious belief. So that if you are Christian or if you convert to Christianity, you become outside the legal protection of the state. Well, you, you know, you know that because you, uh, I'm sure, have you know looked at things like you know uh, the early church and what the early church was doing, meeting in caves and all sorts of things like that. Um, and, but there were there were long, long processes before 311 A.D. in order to become Christian. The whole initiation process was a long process. Now we still have. We have sort of um, remnants of that, but we certainly don't uh, require people a three-year period of, um, of uh, initiation in order to become uh, a member of uh, our Savior's Lutheran Church. We don't do that. Uh, there are some things that we still uh, talk about. For, for example, 311 AD, there was something called enrollment. Huh? When a person, if, if uh, if somebody wants to become Christian, Steve, you want to become Christian, you are enrolled as a candidate for the catechumenate. See that, a couple words there. Now there's still a little vestige of that hanging around some Lutheran churches. Uh, enrollment, any of you remember something called the cradle roll? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Marie? Yeah, we have that. <laughs> you, you, hey, I don't know if we, do we still have anything like that? I don't think so, huh? Okay, um, w when a child is born here, some congregations still have a remnant of that. Uh, so when a child is born, there's a rose on the altar or something like that. Do we? Ever, I don't think we do anything like that anymore. Huh? But there used to be literally a, a, a cradle roll. There was a sheep, and then there was pink and blue ribbons that hang down. And and if you were a, a little boy lamb, you got a little picture on the on the blue ribbon, huh? And, um, but that was from the old ideas of enrollment, huh? because those children would be candidates for baptism. So we still have some kind of remnants of those practices that date prior to 311. I mean, just the term catechumenate, we have kids going to uh, uh, catechism. Huh? Simply the word means what? Question and answers. Huh? I remember Yeah, yeah. That's what used to be a 
let them cut out. I think probably Augsburg made a lot of money off that. So, yeah. Um, but but we still have we have some other remnants uh, sponsors. The idea of sponsors. Uh, sponsors originally three before three eleven were people that were assigned to make sure that Marie uh, was not a saboteur. <laughs> That you were indeed intent uh, and honest about your intent to join the the, the Christian way, huh? So we would we would uh, appoint sponsors for you, huh? And uh, and and so we have sort of the the stuff sort of hanging around, but we don't have the same reasons because because 311 was a watershed time. And and okay, well. Something happened then. After 311, what happened? Well, the church became legalized. Wow. And, in fact, some of your ancestors, I think, were products of the uh, legalization because what was created was something called state church. And uh, any of your ancestors come from, let's see, any of the Scandinavian, still, we still have you know, state church. In, fa in fact, some of your relatives probably came to the New World in order to escape state church. You know, they didn't want to pay taxes um, to, to the state to, you know. Uh, so so that, that's, that happened uh, after 311. So we, before 311, we have outlawed Christianity, correct? Outlawed Christianity. Um, but it was voluntary. That's interesting, huh? We have voluntary Christianity outside the protection of the state. The second date, of course, is critical, and, and that is what? 1781, United States Constitution, which changed things drastically. Because um, what you experience and I experience as a result of 1781 is this set of circumstances. We now have... We now have voluntary Christianity, right, under the protection of the state. Well, that, that's a whole different set of circumstances. So now our prayer life or our congregational life, because it's more than just prayer, um, has, has changed rather drastically. So confirmation is no longer preparation or catechesis for joining the church. Catechesis is post-baptism. Hmm? Or, or, see, we Lutherans have a, we have a definition of confirmation, which we're kind of the envy of everybody, um, but most Lutherans don't know that, especially ELA, ELCA Lutherans, huh? Because, because we define confirmation how? Well, it's not receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not making your parents' faith your own. Um, it's not if you're Swedish signing up for the draft. Uh, it's not uh, becoming a full member of the church. It's none of those things, which still there are remnants around, huh? Um, confirmation, as we Lutheran, ELCA Lutherans, um, understand it is what? It's a, it's a pastoral and educational ministry of the church which helps the baptized 
identify with the life and mission of the church. <coughs> wow, that changes things drastically. Huh? So when you are baptized, you, you are as full a member as you're ever going to be. Huh? Uh, I mean, if there's no... Now, there may be some legal requirements in there from the state of Wisconsin when you can vote on some property issue or something like that. I don't know enough. Dave, you know, there must be something like that for corporate laws. But, but you're, you're as full a member as you're ever going to be. Um, should you die on the afternoon of your baptism, uh, your funeral will repeat precisely the same promises as if you died 98 years later. This is, you know, there's nothing new added. Like, uh, you know, 98 years later, somebody says, oh, by the way, there was, it's works after all, you know, or something like that. You know, uh, you're fully a member. And, and, and that's a result of the freedom that the church now expresses. Um, and, and something had to change. If, if Christianity now became voluntary and legalized, well, that changes the whole, the whole process of initiation. So we don't, we don't really have issues in sponsoring changes. Well, you know, we, don't, we don't need sponsors to guarantee that Marie is not some kind of Roman saboteur. Uh, we don't need that. What we do need, though, is some people who promise to pray for her and care for her. And, uh, and oh, be examples of faith for her. Huh? I mean, it's, it, now it's changed. So, so that, that tiny little change has resulted, you know, tiny, wow, it's, it's earth-shaking, uh, has, has changed drastically um, the reform and restoration of the church. So uh, I look at the you know, I listed here some of the other sort of issues that have been factors in change. Biblical understanding. Um, when, when I was uh, grow, growing up, my, my biblical understanding went something like this. Uh, something called, or I'll just pull out a little piece, orders of creation. Hmm? I, I grew up in a very literal Missouri Synod system um, in which the orders of creation were very clearly spelled out for us, as God is over the creation. Huh? So, so men are to be over women, women are to be over the children, and children, I don't know, over their hamster or something, I don't know. Uh, it never played out that far. Uh, but, but, but then it had corresponding uh, parallels. The pastor, then, is God is over the creation, so the pastor is over the congregation. Huh? And, and so we had a hierarchical, a very nice kind of hierarchical, uh, under, like a ladder, understanding of the ways things are to be. Now, we lived with that. Um, we lived with that until, I'm not sure the exact dates, but it was in the 1950s. It was the German biblical critical movement. Um, some of the names were Wellhausen, Mowinkle. Um, who, who said, "Wait, wait, 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 wait"? We can't, we can't, we can't look at the scriptures literally. We we have to now 
subject them to something that came to be called source criticism. So we look within the scriptures and we begin to understand how the scriptures were put together. Now, now when you do that, of course, when you do that, some things are threatened, are they not? Um, and, and what is threatened that we're still living with the implications of is this whole hierarchical understanding of the of, of the a worldview. Um, if you want my understanding of what conservatism is about, is trying to conserve or preserve basically this kind of a worldview. And 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 of course the danger is if you well if you crack this one, wow the whole thing tumbles, huh? So women don't get uppity, you know. Um, it will keep you in, and there's a whole lot of effort being put to keep this in place, namely power and, and, and threats. Uh, what's, what's the biggest threat? Well, if you don't buy this, then you're all going to hell. Well, that's pretty decent, you know. <laughs> Get me to do something, huh? And, and, and that's, the kind of, uh, that's the kind of threats that keep us in because it's sort of based on a domino theory. If you poke a hole here, everything crumbles. Well, there must be an alternative to a hierarchical understanding. And, and in the, uh, what, what do they do with that little eraser thing? Oh, there it is. In the, uh, in the 60s, which followed very closely on the, uh, on the 50s, um, most of you, I think, were, were going through a, a sort of an ecological movement. Was that Paul Ehrlich? You know, but here, Paul Ehrlich's, Paul Ehrlich's understanding of the universe was to have dramatic effects theologically because it was Ehrlich that had this notion, or, well, not only Ehrlich, but many of the people in the 60s through the uh, environmental movement, we, we came to understand that things are now interdependent. Huh? They're interdependent. And, and so now we each add to the strengths of each other. So rather than a ladder, we begin to understand things in some kind of a circular kind of fashion. Wow, so that means, that means if we use this example then about pastors and congregations, it means that Heather, uh, she, she does a ministry with, within a congregation with and, with and for us. She's not over us, she's one of us doing a very, very specific um, contribution to the whole. So that the whole is extremely important, you know? Wow, but that's changed, uh, that's changed drastically then, um, her understanding and our understanding. We, we, don't, we don't have in the ELCA anymore, I would hope something called, what, what was called the, the Herr Pasteur, huh? the man. Uh, translating it, uh, we call we call Heather to do some very specific things. Uh, when she was installed here, she was taken to three very specific places within the congregation. The, the architecture. She was taken to the 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 pulpit to be among us to preach. She was taken to the altar, be among us to commune and and visit, be among us at the font to do what? Offer the, the words of forgiveness. 
I mean, very, very specific things. Uh, so her yoke or her stole, huh? Uh, in one sense, she now is yoked to us. Now that's a whole different understanding. Uh, it's sort of a drastic understanding, but it came about by some biblical insights um, that are relatively new, if you think about that. Relatively new. Um, and, and so th that's just you know one tiny, tiny example. Um, the, 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 political ch the political changes with, uh, that have occurred, um, I would suggest goes back to this equation and the importance of these dates. That, that we, we enjoy a, a level of protection that very few folks in the world enjoy. We, we have the protection of the state, and, and therefore, we can, we can be public in our expression. Now, the, the, the problem, of course, is um, when, when, I, when I talk about the church being political, by being political just seems, it means to be active in the public sphere. The, the great danger there, is, of course, is that it gets uh, co-opted by those who would make it partisan. Huh? And, and that, that's the great danger. Now, the problem for Lutherans is, in order to avoid uh, being partisan, we say, well, we won't be political at all. Well, you know, or, or we'll say, well, that just belongs, that belongs on Sundays. Huh? Uh, so we have a whole bunch of clergy that refused to recognize that they are, they are political entities, that, that to be active in the public sphere. Uh, if, you know, if you think about this for a moment, um, the, the crucifixion happened because of Jesus' political involvement. Huh? He, he was a rival to some very powerful people. And, and, uh, and so it was, if you think about this, it was politics that one of the issues that put Christ on the cross. You know? um, and, and so, the political changes, as the church, as the church recognizes where its role is in the culture, it prompts the church to do certain things. Now, we've done this before together, many of us here. Um, we've talked about Niebuhr's ideas of Christ and culture. If you'll remember, that we have certain options concerning where the church is to be relative to our culture. Uh, one of the options that Niebuhr pointed out is, well, you can be, you can be separate from the culture. And, and we say, yeah, but we're not Amish. Huh? We're, we're, we're not Amish. We're, we're in the culture. Uh, and, and yet that's an option. We'll just simply isolate ourselves and back off the, back off the culture. Is that... The second we tried, uh, we didn't try it as Lutherans particularly, but it has been tried. I think we, we experienced something a few years ago called the moral majority. Remember that? Yeah, that, that's an attempt to get Christ over the culture. So that if we can elect enough Christian people, well, then we can control the culture. By the way, that's not dead. If I, if I understand anything about what's going on with the 
evangelicals and our current administration is sort of to recapture that sense. And there's some powerful money uh, supporting that um, and, and, and uh, some powerful policies being suggested. Um, the, third, the, the, the third option was an interesting one, and, and that's to put the church under the culture. So we'll just become a tool of the culture. We'll, we'll, we'll become patriots and become as patriotic as we possibly can. I think the closest we got to that, eh, maybe, well, we're close to it, I think, with the prosperity gospel. And I think we're fairly close with Robert Schuller. Huh? Um, we're going we're gonna to teach people um, the purpose is to, to, to turn out good citizens. And so what we want our children to do is just become good citizens. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of effort on the parts of some people uh, that, that, that want to do that, want to see that as the, you know, the role of the church, uh, to turn out patriots. I see, that, I see that sort of thinly disguised some places. When I, uh, and, and the closest, you know, I'm going to paint with a wide brush for a second. The closest we might come to that, at the risk of offending someone in here, um, we might have that with uh, the American flag in our sanctuary. We might have. That somehow, you know, Jesus is the sort of patron entity of the American culture. I mean, if we truly wanted to demonstrate the sovereignty of Christ would put the UN flag in there, I would guess. But I don't think there are certain organizations that would probably drum me out of town if, if we did that. But, but you can see that it, it's the claim that Jesus is sort of one of us. And that's a very dangerous, dangerous position. But I see it here and there. Um, okay, well then, is there a fourth option? Well, the, the fourth option as Niebuhr said, is to, is to see that the church and the, the culture in creative tension. Is that a way of, of understanding that? That there are, there are certain things uh, concerning the culture that we hold to be true about living together. Maybe that's honesty, <laughs> you know, a couple of other things I would think these days. Uh, but, but, the, the church is to be the, the creative voice and of tension within the culture. So, so, so we, are, we have a, a position or a responsibility to be critical. So if we see, for example, injustice, or we see, for example, greed, um, or if we see, for example, the misuse of power, the church is ob obligated to speak up and, and those are not partisan positions. Th those those are, are, are part of our sort of Christian uh, fabric. So so there's there's a, again this example of, of political. Okay, what what about the social the social factors in change? Um, many of uh, well, this congregation is a good example. Um, this congregation, I think, is a, it was born out of migration. Is that, is that a way of maybe thinking about it? I mean, Scandinavians that came here, um, particularly Norwegians, huh? 
that came here, they, they gathered to kind of preserve what they knew. Um, Marie, you probably know, uh, how long was, uh, was Norwegian spoken here and even kids were confirmed in it? I, I don't have a date now. They actually finally ended up with two services. Y yeah. Yeah, St. John's on the highway, um, sti still to this day, uh, has one German service a year. Now the problem is <laughs> finding any pastor that can speak German. So, so th yeah, they do. There's a guy named Bob Strobel who, who was there when I was there, and he's still in, he's in his 90s. And they sort of drag him out every year, and he does the German service. And everybody then goes downstairs and eats sauerkraut and, you know, sauerbraten and, and the whole thing like that. I mean, you know, and we have some of that here. We laugh about it, but we still have some of it here. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And those meatballs that have no red sauce. What is that? Oh. I never, I couldn't understand that when I went to Iowa on my internship and they were going to take me to a meatball dinner and they served me the brown glutinous stuff over <laughs> <laughs> meatballs. I'm going, where's the gravy? You know, where's the red sauce? And I thought, okay. Um, the, the point is that what has changed now, and, and, and just north of here is a really good example of that. Um, in the little town of Barron, Wisconsin, uh, there was a Norwegian Lutheran church there. But if you go there today, what do you see? I mean, you walk in, there's Somalians all over the place. A Somali restaurant in Barron, Wisconsin, huh? Um, because something has happened and something has changed. Uh, the internship congregation I was at in Marshalltown, Iowa, whose pastor, his name was Bernard J. Lokensgard. And I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm going, I'm sitting in Ohio saying, Lokensgard, got two A's, you know? Got an extra A here. Um, they now they now have uh, Hispanic services because they have an enormous number of people who work for Conagua and a huge population of Hispanic people in that community. Um, and and they're doing you know doing taco nights and all sorts of uh, you know Hispanic food and, and you know now. Um, for, fortunately, I, but there, there's, there's a cultural change just simply brought about by migration. Uh, and and I, think the, I think the ELCA is, we're just in the midst of trying to figure out what does this all mean. Huh? And, and I don't think it means, you know, having a, I don't think it means having a Hispanic service at 10 o'clock and then a, everybody, you know, Lutheran service at 11 sometime we might make the step of putting it all together. And, and then I think truly we will have seen the results of, uh, of that enormous social change and social flux. Um, uh, the, the last one I want to look at is kind of interesting. Um, I call it anthropological change. Some, something, has, something has happened um, in our understanding about culture. Um, I go back to, and, and you've heard me do this one before, I think, um, there was an, an extremely important Dutch anthropologist whose name was um, Arnold van Gennep. And Arnold van Gennep, I think the year was around 1937, he did a bunch of research on, on primitive cultures. Particularly, he, 
he studied African cultures and coming-of-age rites. And uh, the one that fascinated Arnold Van Gennep was the one where um, at, at certain tribes in Africa, when, uh, when a young boy comes of age, um, they, they lead him up to the top of this tower, and the whole community gathers below. And uh, they, they attach bungee, you know, vines to this, this kid's ankles, and, and then he is to dive off the tower. I mean, this is long before base jumping and, you know, bungee cords and all of that. Uh, but, but it was the whole idea. And, and what Arnold Van Gettem studied is the, the, the process, the, what was the stages of this. He said that, okay, here's the tower. Um, and, 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 and the kid is here, and, 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 and that's a, that is a process of what he called separation. You, you leave safety, and you're, you're leaving the old, separation. And then he said there's a, there's a time in here that he called chaos, um, or, or, or suspension. And then finally, you know, hopefully the bungee or the vines were you know, the kid isn't a grease spot on the ground. Um, hopefully, um, the, 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 the young man is welcomed into the community that gathers at the bottom. As now, uh, somebody different, he's now an adult. Isn't that an interesting kind of process? So he called that stage, he called that incorporation. And he said that, um, so you have separation, chaos, and incorporation as sort of the three stages of, of what he called passage. Um, this is kind of interesting because then Van Gennep went further to say, well, not only, not only does this pertain to coming of age rights, but it, it's really a description of the stages of many life passages. Huh? Th think about that. Um, we, we, are, we are carried by our mother for nine months, uh, a little bit more maybe, huh? Nine months. And, and, and then um, we are in the safety, we are, we are one with her and safely. And, and then it, birth really describes separation. And and, um, and 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 then um, and, and then we're in the sort of process of labor, which is somewhat chaotic, having never done it, but having been there, but never did it. Huh? Uh, it's cha it's chaotic. It's, we're out of control, uh, and th and then we are incorporated, and we are we are held by our mother. No, oh, by the way, he said incorporation always involves food always involves food. Um, that, that's the sign that you, are, you have arrived. And think, think about that in our various life stages. You know, somebody, somebody dies in our congregation and Olson's come and literally take them away. Huh? That, that's separation. And, and, and then um, here, uh, this is a little different culturally, um, where, where I am from in Pennsylvania, there's a kind of three day, three days process of, you know, visitation and 
Um, but of course, if you think about being in the East, you had to bring everybody from the Midwest or West to get home. Uh, so it, it did take three days probably. Um, so so we, we go to Olson's and there we see the person suspended. I mean, they're not on the floor and they're not hung from the ceiling. They're, they're suspended. They're in, they're in chaos. Huh? And, and then we have a funeral and the, and, and the, the, the funeral, we, we do what? We incorporate the person ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, I hope we add the rest of that sentence in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And, and then what do we do? We all come back here and eat. <laughs> you know? Uh, but interestingly enough, here you don't eat. I mean, people are bringing all kinds of casseroles over and you're stacking them up in the refrigerator or putting them out in the garage or wherever you put them, and you can't eat. But at, 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 at the moment of incorporation, oh, let's go back and get some ham. It's a very interesting kind of process. And it's changed drastically uh, some of our life within the church to the point where um, if you look at the red, the red book, uh, the ELW, baptism and uh, the, the funerals, or the burial dead, are, are listed under passages now. That we now understand that. But, but interestingly enough, um, remember I said everything, everything, here's the Lex Arande, Lex Credendi part of it. Um, it isn't just an anthropological uh, definition of what's going on. But w what is our basic premise, our basic theological premise? Is it not, ready? Is it not death and resurrection? So, so once every year, so once every year on Good Friday, what do we do? We gather together and we talk about we talk about separation, you know. Jesus, Jesus on the cross. He's he's dead, hmm? dead, dead. Huh? Not not, you know, as Billy Crystal said, kind of dead or partially dead. Remember Princess Bride? I mean, that's you know, I think it's a Princess Bride. I think is a wonderful theological statement. Uh, you know, he said, you you know, um, so, so on. On Good Friday, we talk about the separation of, of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus. And, and then we are dismissed. Um, what, I don't know what you do. Do you still do like Tenebrae here or something like that? No, but not the last Okay, it's kind of, it, it gets dark, huh? And, and the absence of light. Uh, and, and then we're dismissed into. The, the word is that describes this. The, the word is we're dismissed into tridium. By the way, it's the only other word in the English language with two U's. Uh, the other one is vacuum. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, it's vacuum. It's interesting. That's how I remember stuff. Crazy thing. Tells you my mind. Um, so tridium is really a separation or a, a celebration of this process, uh, and and then and then we have a the chaos part, um, something called Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is is about suspension, isn't it? It's not about it's not about coming down to church and cooking the meal for Sunday. 
It's, it's about where were the disciples on Holy Saturday? John, they, they were hiding and they were gathered in fear, huh? They were gathered in fear. So, so Holy Saturday is a day that's devoted to chaos. And, and that's extremely important because so many times, and particularly Lutherans, we, we want to deny chaos. You know, we, we want to we get to Easter as quick as you can, you know. Um, so so uh, Easter is, is a day that is um, dedicated to incorporation. He is not, he is not where he was. He is risen. He is alive among us. Is that, that the best the, 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 There's the message. And, and, and the reason I think that has great value and we need to practice that every single year huh, is because that's a wonderful description of, of our life passages. You know, if someone dear to us dies, um, we, we know real well about we know about separation. That person that we cared about isn't, is not here. And, and for the church to say, well, you know, you'll get over it. Uh-uh. You don't, you don't get over it. You live in the midst of it. And, and I, think, I think this whole notion of having of the Holy Saturdays in our life um, is, it makes great sense to me. Um, the gospel, the good news, speaks always to people in the midst of these two. And, and, and if you don't, if you deny these two, then what good do you need, you know, so what value is the good news? Um, who was the guy that, if you, what, what was it, uh, Transcend, no, what was the name of the philosophy? I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that? What was that called? I can't remember. I had a friend that said, if I'm okay and you're okay, what's Jesus doing on the cross? I mean, you know, and, uh, we aren't okay. The, the reality is we're not okay. So, so this whole anthropological survey and study um, has come into the church and now, makes a, now is a way of, of understanding our basic theology in a, new, in a whole new way. That's that's change, folks. That's change. And and so what I tried to do then is look at these factors that that uh, that cause or govern change. And so what we're going to do when we look at these other things, for example, uh, the Book of Acts, we're going to look at for just a few minutes. Um, what, what what was going on then? What, what was behind it all? Um, what, what was taking place that caused something to happen? A, a good example. The, the Reformation is one of those wonderful times of kind of a confluence of, of things, isn't it? I mean, think about, think about Luther. He's sitting here and he's writing like crazy and translating. And over here is Gutenberg developing movable type. The two come together and what happens? You've got you've got Luther now having a way to 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 disperse his writing, or or the Apostle Paul wants to carry the the message of the gospel on Rome on, on Rome's roads. 
you know? I mean, the whole transportation issue in Paul's time was responsible in one sense for the dissemination of the gospel. Here's these things coming together. So we want to look at these kind of coincidences as much as we can. Well, um, some, some comments maybe for just a moment? Is this making any kind of sense? Hopefully, I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm one that's been trained so well to always ask what does this mean? I mean, I was just <laughs> drilled into my head. And, and I suppose uh, that was a gift because I'm naturally kind of a curious person. And I always want to get behind it. Um, as a teacher, I always ask, what's the significance of this? You know, I don't care if you can identify something. What's the significance of it? That's, that's the critical issue, isn't it? I mean, a, a good teacher prompts you to get beyond definitions to significance. Okay. Um, the, uh, the church immediately, if you think of it this way, on the, I have the apostolic church. Um, the, the apostolic church, I, I did a kind of a review for you. You might want to scan that because I think it's a sort of summary of the book of Acts. But uh, if, you think about, if you think about the, the early church, the, the apostolic church, the church upon which the spirit lit, um, the, the main composition to those people for whom uh, they, who experienced Pentecost was what? The, the, they were all Jews. Huh? Uh, the early church was primarily Jewish, and it's, Jesus was Jewish. Huh? We, we, we don't want we, we want to forget that. Huh? So where did Jesus hang out on the Sabbath? Went to the synagogue. Huh? That's what that's what you do if you're Jewish. And so, in one sense, if you think about the first Reformation, the very first reform that that occurred to God's people in that setting, of course, is um, Pentecost. Uh, is is really a, a a renewal and restoration. That the, these Jewish people became something else. I mean, they, they were they were changed, and and um, they were they were changed uh, by the not voluntarily. Like, I think we'll become followers of the way. Um, they were changed, as we believe, by the by the work of the Spirit. So it would seem to me that one of the first the first reformative acts was Pentecost. But now we have a problem. Um, and it was the very first conflict that occurs within this new church, and, and that occurs in the book of Acts. W what do you have? What's the problem? Well, very, very early um, in, in the, the book of Acts, well, about midway through the book of Acts, um, the church became uh, divided. What was the question? The question is this. That if 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 you're going to become if you're going to become Christian, and and as a result of the missionary outreach of the church into the Gentile world, do do the Gentiles who wish to become Christian, do they have to become Jews first? Hmm? That's 
it's couched in language of you have to be first circumcised and then and then baptized or is this new the way going to be open to the to the world so very very quickly in this in this early church uh, the apostolic church what second generation church already we've got a huge conflict and we have and we have parties formed we've got the we've got the patrine people um, the, the because Peter at this point is advocating that you have to be what you have to be Jewish first before you can become Christian that that's his position so you have the patrine party if you want to think of it that way and, and then you have the the second counter party the Pauline party the Pauline party the the followers of Paul and Barnabas they're saying no 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 you don't have to become Jewish first you can be immediately a candidate for baptism there's no intervening step so so we've got this conflict and and it's a very divisive conflict and in one sense um, you can see why some people were patrine sort of the same definitions that we get well if, if I had to do it so do they you know I mean that's a that's a common sort of way that the church deals with issues well if it was good enough for me it's good enough for you that's sort of you know if I had to go through boot camp so do you um, or if I had to suffer through you know three years of catechism you do too um, or, or whatever you know excuses we we give for our practices um, so so you have a you have this conflict and it's it's a bitter conflict and it's dividing congregations or communities but then something happens okay um, what happens um, Peter interestingly enough experiences what Yeah, he, he experiences a dream or a vision. Huh? And the vision is this, that there's this sort of great net led down, and in the net are all kinds of stuff. All kinds of animals and reptiles and fish and all, you know, all sorts of things. Well, his previous position would be, hey, I can't have anything to do with that because I have to be a Jew first and there's kosher and there's non kosher. But, but in his dream, um, he is he's envisioning himself having eating this stuff this unclean stuff and and so he comes to a meeting of the of the uh, disciples and he starts talking about this dream and I guess somebody there said hey Peter you you changing your position or what are you doing here and he's saying well yeah because now I understand things a new way this is a this is a new uh, understanding of the composition of the community and so very very early this conflict is resolved to the point that um, no longer do you have to be Jewish first in order to become baptized if you want to think about that way that the church the church is going to be an open community to the world so that the the Pauline people um, become in a sense the the dominant way things things are done now the reason I want to spend a little bit of moment on that is because you, you can see you can see the conflict is more than just what do you have to do 
that, that the people on both sides have a lot invested on the way it's going to come out. And, and so it is today. Um, when we get any possibility of change, um, there's a lot of people who have a lot of stuff invested. Um, I often describe the church as the one, it's a parade in which you have the church on both ends. You know, that if you think about so social issues, for example, um, I'm not, I can't think of many in the past, in my lifetime, where the church has been not uh, out on the front as a leading advocate. But I also have seen the church as the last to, um, to, to accept. And, and usually our Lutheran way of accepting is to quit and join something else. You know, that's how we, that's how we, we, that, we just form a new synod. Yeah. I just remember that, you know, in Acts you have what I call the first church-wide assembly. Yes, exactly. They, they in Jerusalem, yeah. Issue. Yeah. And say, well, you don't have to be circumcised, yeah. but you have to refrain from eating certain things. Yeah. <coughs> and so, then they proceed to ignore it. So, so maybe that says something, and here's, I think a lot about this relative to how <laughs> our congregations are formed. Um, in the article that, um, that was in the paper, Dave Carlson, who's my friend, said, well, I quit writing. I've quit writing. Well, I really haven't. <laughs> what I'm doing right now is a collection of, um, of things that I, that I arrogantly call better ideas. Um, uh, maybe ways, maybe the, one of my better ideas is that the church is not a democracy. Just to think about that way. You know, we, the, the, the usual way we s resolve disputes within the church is let's vote on it, you know? We'll just have a vote and then the winners will rule. So we'll decide whether we're gonna have communion every Sunday or not. So Jesus loses what? 49 to 51, because nobody wants to wash the little glasses. <laughs> so, but, but you see, you see the, the danger in doing that. You, you create then a winner and a loser. But, but what, if, what, if, uh, what if we understood something about uh, the work of the spirit, that maybe the spirit works through consensus rather than democracy? Hmm? And, and that you know, consensus is a great word. It means with sense. Maybe we, maybe we looked at rationally um, what's behind some of the things we normally would vote on. Does that make any kind of sense? Um, I think I've used this example before. Um, the congregation that, that I served at University Lutheran, uh, we wanted to become a reconciled in Christ congregation. In other words, we wanted to welcome uh, gay and lesbian people, we, we wanted to welcome people into our midst. And so we had a congregational meeting uh, in the basement of the Ecumenical Center, and we were going to vote on this. And, uh, and we were just about ready to vote, and this man put up his hand. His name was Link Walker, and he, Heather, you probably knew him. He, he was a member of, uh, he was the football coach at the university. And, and he was rough. I mean, he really was. But he, had, he and his wife had joined University Lutheran to uh, an adult you know, 
catechism without instruction. And his wife was unbaptized, and she was baptized and all that. But anyhow, we're all ready to vote, and Link put up his hand and said, Pastor, we can't vote on this. And I'm going, oh, crap, here we go. <laughs> you know, here we go. Um, I thought we had it, but... Uh, and he said, you know, he said, in, when we were taking instructions, you said these people were baptized and therefore our brothers and sisters. We can't vote on them. And I'm going, you're right, you know. Um, and, and so we, we didn't vote. We did it by consensus based on what we held to be true. Uh, by the way, it was the last vote that we took there in my 22 years. We never, we didn't vote on anybody anymore. We, we, all of our... All of our church council people were elected because they saw that as their ministry. Because every time I ever saw people running for office, somebody wins, somebody loses. And, and the person that loses, typically we didn't see him for a while. Uh, so we, we decided we'd do it theologically. You know, that was your ministry. And you could serve in that ministry until you felt like it exhausted your talents. I mean, we were, I think, the only Lutheran church that I ever knew that had Gary Rangans, who was a Roman Catholic president, um, because he couldn't be, he couldn't join the Lutheran church because his mother was still alive. <laughs> and so, and so uh, Gary was our president because he saw that was a use for his gifts. But my, the point in all this is um, that, that consensus is maybe something we, we ought to think about. This whole notion of everything needs to be decided democratically. We're, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we're not 3M. Um, we're, we're, we function by a whole different set of understanding of principles. We are, uh, we are led by the Spirit. Now that changes things drastically. Uh, and, and we might look at this first, first conflict within the early church. Um, if we if we did it in a classic fashion, we got all the Pauline people uh, would have bought airtime, and 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 the Petrine people would have done the same, and you know, the Jerusalem newspapers would have made a hell of a lot of money, um, and 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 it would have been a, you know a schism. Well, I I think I think every schism is a a marvelous example of the Lutheran churches misunderstanding of who and what it is um, you know and we, we've ex I, I don't need to tell you that we've experienced that here um, if we could have at some point dealt with some issues theologically perhaps out of our baptismal understanding we, we wouldn't uh, we would probably not be where we are uh, and it's a tragic kind of witness to the rest of the world. I mean, every single synod uh, is a is a horrible witness to the whole notion of you know Lutherans can't get along. We got 26 Lutheran churches in in the Eau Claire area. Isn't that? That's, I mean, what does that say? Um, I know what it says to me, and I understand some of the reasons behind the issues, but if you're sitting outside the church, you know, why is there a Lutheran congregation on every corner? You know, what kind of witness is that? But, okay, that's my horse for the day I want to ride. <laughs> um, so, so the book of Acts, if you, if you have a, 
a few, a few minutes. You might want to read particularly the 15th and 16th chapters because that describes the, the council in Jerusalem. And, and okay, uh, where are we going to go together? Uh, next, next time we gather together, I want to look at the early church. I want to look at the church before 311 AD. What was there? What were the conflicts? Um, what were the reforms? What, what happened 311 AD uh, that still today uh, has dramatic effects? And uh, th that's where we're going to go together. Okay? Good. Uh, thank, again, thank you all for being here. It's kind of fun stuff, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Huh? Good. Good. Go ahead, Ben. Huh? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what happens if you have a good friend who writes. Oh. Oh, okay. Uh, no, um, my wife who uh, can do, the, she, she made some copies. <laughs> she thought my kids ought to have one. Yeah. 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 Yeah.